0: Hi, this is Martin Medeiros with Negotiation Strategist Research, and as you know, I stand for the proposition that we communicate our needs to the world using negotiation and how effective we are at communicating those needs determine if we achieve our needs. Negotiation is agency. Negotiation is freedom. You can control it. Hi, this is Mark Medeiros with Negotiation Strategist Research, and today I'm going to talk about one of my favorite authors, uh, Robert Cialdini. He published two books. I want to talk about today. One is in 1984, called Influence, millions of copies sold, and the one, his most recent one in uh, 2016, Pre-Suasion. And I want to emphasize the mechanism. Whenever we hear about social science on Influence, Persuasion, Negotiation, uh, we read the headlines, we may know a little bit about it, but it's really important to know the sequence of events that need to happen before that actual persuasive thing is done. And without further ado, you know that I stand for negotiation being a systems approach and it's driven a lot by human emotion. The systems being uh, strategy, things we do beforehand, tactics, things we do at the negotiation, operations, things external to the negotiation that impact it. So I'm going to take his books in reverse order because the way I read it, uh, the influence work he did in 1984 drives it, but his 2016 book, Persuasion talks about, well, that stuff in 1984 still works, but you got to prime kind of set the stage before people will really be attentive to that. And for that reason, you have this book, Persuasion. there's three elements that he talks about. We have to get people's attention. And uh, when we get into their, um, their attention. There's what he calls, you know, embedded associations with certain things that that drive attention. Once we get their attention, uh, we can prime or get them in a mind state that's more receptive to what we're trying to ask them. And without further ado, let's get right into the anchoring. So six things that captivate our attention. This is old, you know, 1960s, 70s, 80s ad stuff. A lot of the research actually was done by Chilini himself. But what we're talking about here is uh, things that are unique captivate our attention. Things that have to do with conflict um, uh, really captivate our attention. I mean, I was at a debate the other week and both of the debaters kind of agreed on most of the topics, which I can't even remember what it was about because it really didn't captivate my attention. Uh, because there was no conflict. And when you go to a debate, you expect back and forth. Um, Unfinished work captures our attention. Uh, Things of and concerning sex have to do uh, capture our attention. Things that are unique and mysterious as well capture our attention. And also things above and about ourselves. When we hear our names, we're very attracted to that. Uh, This is old Dale Carnegie stuff. uh, His book, How to Win friends and influence people, people like the sound of their name. And sometimes it's called the cocktail party effect, where you're engaged speaking to someone at a cocktail party. And then from across the room, someone mentions your name and they're not yelling it, it's just at normal volume, room volume. But somehow we have this radar to listen to our own voices. And then once we hear our voice, we kind of drop the conversation with uh, the person and start listening to the other uh, person talking about us. Uh, that has to do with the power of hearing our own voice, things of, about, and concerning ourselves really lock us in. And those are the six elements that can get our attention in the 21st century because we have screens. It's very hard to maintain uh, people's attention these days. Uh, it, once again, it's uniqueness, conflict, unfinished work, sex, mystery, mysterious stuff, and, of course, our names. Next, he talks about, in his 1984 book, these ideas of uh, six primary elements that help us uh, persuade and get people on board. So once we anchor their attention, he talks, uh, again, in his pre-suasion, he talks about priming, which gets people in the mind state. For example, if I'm trying to get my boss to adopt a new data protection policy and I'm asking for a large... Budget item. I'll say something like uh, how terrible it is to get a call in the middle of the night saying there's been a data breach and we have to provide notice and con- and uh, to all people whose data was breached. But if you allocate these funds, then we can have a more robust data protection infrastructure for our information technology system and. What I want to do is talk about things that my boss would be interested in. Would you like to sleep soundly at night knowing that there's a very low risk of a data breach? Well, right now we're in a high-risk catalog. If we make this allocation on the budget in my department, that will be a lower risk. So the peace of mind, getting in a good night's sleep is something you can look forward to if we really take care of this chink in our armor, which is data security. That's an example of creating an image where we're asking for something, but we're priming for the ask of, hey, if you want to rest easy, we need to do this. Something that data managers do sometimes. Um, once we have that primed, then we get into his 1984 materials, to uh, this idea of reciprocity. When I do a small favor for you or give you something, there's some tension for you to reciprocate, for you to give it back. This is why the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and these other legislations uh, that are against bribing or gift giving or you know government employees accepting uh, gifts is so important because the amount of the gift, the value of the gift can have nothing to do with the amount that the person reciprocates with. For example, I can buy a cup of coffee or give a ticket to a theater to someone. And if there's a pending deal between us, which could be millions of dollars, that little reciprocal event may be enough to bias that person to award me that contract and that's why these ideas of um, you know dealing with foreign officials and in is such a nefarious thing because this this idea of reciprocity is such a strong motivator also one of Cialdini's elements are this idea of consistency we generally like to be consistent as uh, consistent and we like to deal with people who are consistent so this second element of consistency has to do with getting us on a path and the mechanism again I talked about the social mechanism here would be um, a small ask and self-identification with the ask hey I'm doing this it's non-coercive and If I adopt it publicly, I will never retract this. This is why on social media, you hear people taking extreme positions and not backing off for them, even if all the data and everything else is contrary. The issue is they want to be consistent. And it's such a pull to be consistent that once we make a public declaration of our position, it's hard to retract. Now, I want to back up for a moment when I talked about reciprocity. And we'll talk about that mechanism and the mechanism for reciprocity is, uh, for it to work. You have to be the first to, to give, it has to be unexpected and personalized. Uh, once those three elements first to give unexpected and personalized, generally people will want to reciprocate back to us. Okay. Back on the third element we have, remember reciprocity, consistency. And now I'm going to talk about commonality. Um, what we want to do is, this is very tribal. We know, uh, like, and do business with people who we trust who are similar to us. So, what does that mean? If we have uh, a common upbringing, if we look alike, uh, if we have real similarities, and if we can link those and offer some praise on those similarities to the person, and if the third element is to link those similarities to the goal we're going towards, then that can be very persuasive. For example, if I say, hey, we grew up on the same island, and we know how hard it can be in dealing with adversity. And by adopting this policy, we can better get uh, our the people who we work with to adapt to adversity a little bit better. It's part of the ethos that we grew up on that, you know, it served us well and I think it could serve our constituency well. That would be something when you're trying to coalition build or get someone on the same page on this commonality element. Another element is this idea in Shildene's work of authority. And this is a tactic where we cite a law, a person, a a guru uh, that they are authoritative, and therefore we should follow them. Uh, The authority has to be valid or have the appearance of validity. And it has to have um, some weight. In fact, there's different levels of weight. For example, if I quote an authority to someone, that's one thing. If a third party to that person I'm trying to influence quotes the same authority, the mechanism is that much stronger. So it seems like a consensus. Uh, one of the commonality elements he talks about is likability, which has to do with how we look. This is an, a mechanism for uh, you know attraction, hygiene, uh, positive uh, worldview, people we like. We like to do business with them. People who are you know oppositionally defiant, uh, run against us. We probably are less likely to do business with them on a continuing basis, and maybe more of a commodity type reaction. One of his major topics is this idea of social proof, and this explains so much of human behavior. And the mechanism for social proof is as follows. If I'm trying to persuade someone uh, to do something or take an action, the first thing I'm gonna do is describe the benefit. Second thing, I'm gonna describe what other people did uh, to take use of this or to take advantage of this benefit who are similarly situated. And then I just asked them to do with these other people who benefited from them. And that's the mechanism without those three steps, uh, saying, Hey, everyone else is doing it. So you do it. And you see this on a lot of things. For example, I'm shielding this book himself says over a million copies sold. And then I'm thinking, can a million people be wrong? But if I were to say, uh, if my target were say, uh, salespeople, over five hundred thousand salespeople bought the book. Join them and make the same choice they did. That's much more persuasive because these are similar-situated people. If I'm a salesperson, I'm asking them to do the same thing. Uh, scarcity uh, is his final thing, which is this kind of odd human uh, tendency where if something is scarce, we want it more, and. Uh, it doesn't really matter what it is, what, if it's really one of our needs, as I say, we communicate our needs to the world using negotiation. But if it's scarce, we want it all the more, uh, even though it, it may not really fit as a need. And those are the, uh, the elements of his persuasion. There's a few other things that, uh, Cilvini doesn't really talk about. I call them kind of bonus things. And I want to talk about those right now. Um, which, you know, it's they're almost related. So this idea of scarcity is played up in, in political circles in the form of crisis, where you hear um, a sense of urgency through a fear-based incentive. This is what you hear um, a lot of politicians Did We have a, this crisis, and I know the answer. We have a, this crisis, and we need this legislation that I want so this idea of crisis is kind of the ultimate scarcity that you hear about another mechanism is regret uh, there were studies done where if you mention a party's regretting something they're more likely to do that or just say uh, it doesn't it, it not a threat but consider the alternatives the negative alternatives because if you uh, if it if you say that oh you're going to regret not taking this it's very threatening to a lot of professional negotiators, they're going to push back on this right away. But if it can be phrased in such a um, a thing of, hey, we can be better off if we take this um, position in my view. And if not, we may not like that outcome. Another uh, kind of bonus persuader is this idea of distal gratification. Uh, this works. Um, I've interviewed a number of uh, hostage negotiators uh and people who are uh, very emotionally uh, caught into a situation and they really can't see straight because their emotions are driving it, uh, you've got to get them out of that current situation. You can't talk about the past because it's frustrating. It's already done and people have guilt and all these other associations with the past. You can't really talk about the present because the present's a pretty bad situation. These emotions are overflowing. This idea of distal gratification, where there's something in the future where people can benefit from or it'll be better than their current situation, that is much more persuasive. Another reason, uh, another element is on persuasion is this idea of reason. So reason works as follows. If I give you a reason for my ask, you're much more likely to accept it. And this is what I call the photocopy studies, where uh, these project was done, uh, or the experiment was done with people queuing up in front of a photocopy. You'd have one person say, hey, I only have one copy, you have 20, will you let me jump in line? Sure. Uh, I have uh, 25 copies and you have one, let me jump in line with you. They said yes, and that's the issue. Then they started saying, I have a dog at home. Can I jump in line in front of you? Yes, I have a kid. Can I jump in front? You know, all these irrelevant uh, uh, asks were made. But the person who said, can I just jump in line? Can I just cut in front of you? Those people did not get to cut in line. The people did not allow them. And the takeaway here is giving a logical reason for your ask is very powerful. But what this study showed is almost any reason will do. So if you pair your ask with a reason, you're much more likely to get it. And finally, one thing that gets us more agreeable, if we can immunize our parties from the risk. In other words, uh, I've said in, in other lessons, we change our position based on emotion, but we keep it during, uh, because of logic. One of the emotional reactions I get a risk of loss of changing a position. It's very difficult to overcome sometimes. But if I can immunize that person uh, from that risk of loss, then it's a lot easier. For example, money-back guarantee. Hey, if you suffer a loss, I'll make you whole. Those things take this emotional, uh, this emotional charge away from them. What some uh, service providers and goods providers found that It didn't really matter if it was a 30-day money-back guarantee or a year money-back guarantee. People generally, if they kept it for a certain number of days, they kept it forever and disregarded the longer term. But the fact that there was a guarantee, it removed, it immunized them from that risk of changing their position. And those are essentially the things that Ciovini and the bonus materials you about persuasion. First of all, persuasion is used tactically. Before we do that, we want to pre sway we want to anchor, we want to prime the subject, getting them into a good mind state, and then we can use some of those persuasive things, social proof, uh, commonality, likability, in order to get our needs met. This is Martin Madeira's with Negotiation Strategist Research. Thanks for listening today.